0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of kidnapping, murder, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: Vancouver police officers gathered in Grant Wilson's home on March 30, 1950. To the officers, Grant's home certainly didn't look like the kind of place a murderer lived.
0: Nevertheless, Grant's name kept popping up in the case of Joanne Dewey, an 18-year-old woman who'd been kidnapped and killed 11 days prior. On the morning of March 30th, one of Grant's cars, a tan Pontiac coupe, was found to contain blood and broken teeth.
1: Officers asked Grant how human remains wound up in his vehicle. Grant swallowed hard and stepped out of the room to call his pastor. He returned a few minutes later, ready to speak.
0: Grant admitted he'd made some questionable decisions in the name of family loyalty. His brothers were known criminals, but he yearned for their approval. Even though he knew they were up to no good, he let his brothers use his vehicles without asking too many questions.
1: On the night of Joanne's kidnapping, two of Grant's older brothers, 24-year-old Terman and 20-year-old Utah, were using his car. They drove away in his black Buick sedan. The same vehicle witnesses saw the crime scene.
0: Terman and Utah came back for another car the next day and told Grant they were leaving town. Grant didn't bother asking why, but when he read about Joanne's kidnapping, he worried his brothers were responsible.
1: Welcome to Solved Murder's True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
0: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case.
1: You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free, exclusively on Spotify.
0: This is our second episode on the 1950 murder of Joanne Dewey. Last week, we followed Vancouver Police as they began their investigation into the 18-year-old's death. This week, we'll see how authorities finally caught Joanne's killers, then discover exactly how they committed their terrifying crime.
2: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all.
0: New season out on Spotify soon. On March 30th, 1950, 11 days after 18 year old Joanne Dewey was kidnapped in Vancouver, Washington, authorities got the names of her potential killers. Grant Wilson told police that his brothers, Terman and Utah, borrowed his cars the night of the heinous crime.
1: Officers were familiar with Terman. He was 24 years old and had, until recently, been employed at a wool mill in Washington State. The Monday after Joanne's kidnapping, Terman didn't show up for work. A few days later, Grant told Terman's boss that Terman had moved to
0: California. Police already ran Terman's fingerprints against those found on a beer bottle at the crime scene. The prints weren't a match, so officers naively turned their attention away from the 24-year-old. When Grant insisted that Terman was involved, detectives took a closer look at his criminal record. In
1: 1942, when Terman was just 16 years old, he was found guilty of the rape and attempted kidnapping of two girls. The jury sentenced him to seven years in prison.
0: Almost immediately following his release, Terman was arrested for armed robbery and jailed once again. At the time of Joanne's death, He had been out of prison for less than one year.
1: Utah, on the other hand, had a less violent record. He'd been in and out of juvenile detention, but he didn't have any adult convictions. Still, he was only 20 years old, and officers assumed that he, like Grant, yearned for his older brother's approval. If Terman had been itching to commit another crime, he could have easily roped Utah into the kidnapping.
0: The image of the kidnapping was becoming clearer, and Terman and Utah seemed like fitting culprits. Unfortunately, Chief Harry Diamond was all too aware of one major problem.
3: It makes sense, but we can't prove any of it. All the evidence is circumstantial. You call blood and teeth circumstantial? The Pontiac belongs to Grant. But Terman's fingerprints are all over it. So what? It's his brother's car. Of course he's been incited. Plus we can't prove he drove the black Buick. We don't even know where it is. You're hindering this case, you know that? I'd caution you against speaking to your chief that way. You're not even trying, Harry. There are ways to solve this case. We can keep looking for the Buick. We can get Utah's fingerprints from the juvenile records. If they match the prints on the beer bottle, we'll know he was involved. Even so, how are we supposed to find him? I'm willing to bet he's with Terman. California is only so big. If we put out a call for their arrest, somebody is bound to find them. You can't give up. Keep reading the file. Maybe there's something we missed.
1: Vancouver investigators' main objective was to find physical evidence of Terman and Utah's guilt. Without this, it would be difficult to get an arrest warrant and nearly impossible to convict them.
0: To this end, detectives retrieved Utah's fingerprints from Washington State's juvenile records. They sent these to be compared with the prints found on the beer bottle. While they waited for results, they kept searching for Grant Wilson's black Buick sedan.
3: You want a cup of coffee? I'm okay. Take it, you need it. Now, assuming Terman and Utah are guilty. That's a big assumption. Not really. Assuming they're guilty, they switched cars at some point in the evening. They drove the Buick first, then the Pontiac. Chances are that they just left the Buick stranded somewhere, right? It's possible. And if they left the Buick somewhere unattended, what would happen to it? I don't know. Harry, come on. It would get towed. How much do you want to bet that Buick sitting in a lot somewhere impounded? Drink the coffee. Perk up. I'm going to find that car.
1: As it turned out, Carl was right. Vancouver police at some point found a black Buick sedan with license plates registered to Grant Wilson.
0: Chief Harry Diamond picked up the vehicle. As he drove it to the station, he noticed the back seat filling up with fumes. The Buick had a faulty exhaust pipe that trapped carbon monoxide in the car. Someone sitting in the back would inhale a substantial amount of the poisonous gas.
1: Chief Harry felt a chill go down his spine. He'd been skeptical about the Buick, fearful that Grant was lying or mistaken. But the discovery of the broken exhaust pipe, morbid as it was, lifted his spirits. Joanne must have died in the backseat of Grant's car. Officers just needed to prove Terman and Utah had been sitting up front.
0: As it turned out, Vancouver police would get that proof very quickly, When Chief Harry got back to the station, his sergeants were waiting with an open envelope.
3: The fingerprint analysis is already back. Utah's prints are a match. Seriously? Seriously. Get on the phone with the FBI. We need a nationwide alert for his internment's arrests. I want everybody in America searching for them. Will do, Chief. And Detective? Sorry for letting my frustration get in the way. We're going to catch these guys if it's the last thing we do.
1: Following Chief Harry's orders, the department contacted the FBI. Though Terman told Grant he'd gone to California, officers couldn't be sure he was telling the truth. He and Utah could be anywhere, so the FBI sent a call for their arrests to every U.S. state.
0: Vancouver police felt hopeful. Both brothers had fairly distinct looks. 20-year-old Utah was boyish and clean-shaven, with curly hair and a prominent brow. 24-year-old Terman had a long, oval-shaped face, thin hair, and a flat forehead. If either of the brothers dared to go out in public, people would likely recognize them.
1: While these alerts were distributed, Grant Wilson sat in his living room, chewing on his bottom lip. As hard as he tried, he couldn't shake the feeling that he'd betrayed his brothers. He kept reminding himself of what his pastor had told him, Whatever happened, it was God's will.
0: Grant was just beginning to breathe easier when his phone rang. Hello?
4: Hey there, bud. It's Terman. Just called in to let you know Utah and I are all settled. We're down in Sacramento for the time being. Managed to get a pretty nice 38 Oldsmobile to drive around in. You don't need to worry about nothing.
3: Okay, yeah. Good to hear.
4: Police been by to talk to you?
3: Um, no.
4: Great. Well, just make sure Mom knows where we are, alright?
3: Sure thing. Talk to you later, then. Yeah.
1: The conversation tied Grant's stomach into knots. So much had gone unsaid. Before fleeing to California, Terman had told Grant that he and Utah were trying to avoid being arrested for stealing a power saw, They hadn't talked about Joanne Dewey, the missing Buick, or the bloodied Pontiac.
0: Terman had no idea that Grant was in contact with the police. With one foolish phone call, Terman ruined his and Utah's chances of ever getting away.
1: As soon as Grant hung up, he passed the information along. His older brothers were driving the 1938 Oldsmobile in Sacramento, California. Sherman and Utah were sitting ducks, and in just a few hours, Sacramento police located their vehicle.
0: The car was parked on a street not far from the Brothers Motel. Local authorities and members of the FBI parked their own vehicles about half a block away.
1: Approximately two and a half hours later, two men in button-up shirts were spotted walking towards the Oldsmobile. Before they could get inside, authorities surrounded them.
3: Excuse me, boys. I'm an agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigations. What are your names? Terman Wilson. Utah Wilson. You're both under arrest for the kidnapping and murder of Joanne Dewey.
0: Up next, Terman and Utah Wilson are sent back to Vancouver to await trial, and Sheriff Earl Anderson has an unorthodox... An unethical idea.
1: Hi listeners, it's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals. Like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: After 12
1: days of investigating, detectives in Vancouver, Washington, finally got the breakthrough they'd been hoping for. On March 31, 1950, 24-year-old Terman and 20-year-old Utah Wilson were arrested for the kidnapping and murder of 18-year-old Joanne Dewey.
0: While Terman and Utah sat handcuffed in the back of a Sacramento police cruiser, authorities searched their vehicle and motel room. Utah was carrying a loaded gun, and authorities found another in the Oldsmobile. They also found $550 in cash, the equivalent of about $6,000 today in Utah's possession.
1: A survey of the motel room found that Turman and Utah had collected a stack of newspaper clippings about Joanne's disappearance and death. As they made their way from Washington to California, they kept track of the investigation probably so they would know if police were on their trail.
0: Unfortunately for the brothers, officers had closed in on them incredibly quickly. They had no warning and no time to escape. By April 4, 1950, they were in holding cells in Vancouver.
1: While nobody liked Terman in Utah, Clark County Sheriff Earl Anderson, the man who'd gotten in a drunken brawl and nearly lost his job over the case— had a particular distaste for the brothers.
3: If you go ahead and confess, it'll make everybody's job a whole lot easier. I'm not guilty. You know, Terman, I don't really like you.
4: Well, I don't really like you either.
3: Well, I don't really care what you like. If you're not guilty, why'd you and your brother run off to California?
4: Honestly, we thought we were gonna get arrested for stealing our neighbor's power saw.
3: A power saw, right. Is that power saw somehow responsible for the blood and teeth found inside your brother's car? Did the power saw come to life and kill Joanne Dewey all on its own? I don't know
4: anything about blood or teeth or Joanne Dewey, and I don't feel like answering any more of your
0: stupid questions. The exchange infuriated Sheriff Anderson. He'd hoped for a confession, but Terman had come up with an excuse, albeit a pretty pathetic one.
1: Anderson didn't believe Terman's story, but the 24-year-old wouldn't answer any more questions. The sheriff later sat down with Utah, who parroted his older brother's defense. He'd gone to California after stealing a power saw, and he had no idea how his fingerprints wound up at the crime scene.
0: The sheriff's department checked for reports of a stolen power saw. There were none. In all likelihood, the story was a total fabrication— But the brothers refused to speak any further. Over the next week, they met only with lawyers and a minister.
1: After just a few meetings, this clergyman grew quite close to the brothers.
3: Now, I know how this is going to sound, but I'm worried about those boys. Have you ever really spoken to them? Yeah, and I think they're a couple of degenerates. Sheriff Anderson, they're stunted. Emotionally, I mean. They're very dependent on one another. It's not good for them to be housed separately. Why should I care what's good for them? Uh, do you read the Bible, Sheriff? Matthew 5:44, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Leviticus 24:17, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Well, they aren't dead yet. And if they will be soon, what's the harm in letting them bunk together until their trial? Fine. Actually, yes, that's a great idea. I'll get a room set up for them before the end of the day.
0: Sheriff Anderson had a sudden change of heart, but only because he realized he could use this new arrangement to his advantage. He knew exactly how to figure out what the Wilson brothers were hiding.
1: Before Terman and Utah moved into their shared cell, Sheriff Anderson hid a microphone in the room hoping to catch some
0: incriminating
1: evidence on tape.
0: At the time, this was technically legal. However, like most of Sheriff Anderson's actions, it would prove to have unintended consequences.
1: The main problem with the hidden microphone was that it wasn't a well-kept secret. The day that Terman and Utah moved into their new cell, their lawyer cautioned them, Careful what you
3: say. The walls might have ears.
0: It's unclear if the lawyer knew about the microphone or if he was simply speculating. Either way, his warning invalidated every other recorded conversation.
1: Because the brothers had been tipped off, it was impossible to tell if their exchanges were candid. They could have disregarded the warning and spoken as usual, or they could have staged conversations to throw Vancouver police off.
0: In either case... Sheriff Anderson managed to record both highly incriminating and seemingly exonerating information. One of the first conversations he captured made the case look open and shut.
3: They got the bottle, they got the car, they got the body. Why'd you have to kill her?
4: She knew too much. If you hadn't been drinking that beer, we wouldn't be in the fix we are.
3: I wish you'd have just buried her with the rest of the stuff.
1: Well, I do too. Later on, though, Terman and Utah mentioned names that Vancouver police were unfamiliar with. Marvin Colby is gonna
4: suffer, and so are we. You should have told him about the body. Didn't Leonard Coover tell you he sent her clothes flying into the chute?
3: You mean Colby.
4: Colby took the mat, too. The body would have been in a culvert if it wasn't for Cranston. Cranston went off the bridge and wiped the blood off his shoes. Colby hit her right in the chin. Jesus! I don't know where to put the blame! It's a rough setup with them trying
0: to frame us. Screw Colby for running off! It seems likely that at some point between the first and second recording, Terman and Utah became fully aware of the microphone. By mentioning random names and suggesting that they were being framed, the brothers hoped to deflect blame and distract police.
1: In some ways, this worked. Detectives took the time to follow up on Marvin Colby, but discovered nothing consequential.
0: By the end of May 1950, authorities had listened to hours and hours of conversation between the brothers. Most of the tapes were unintelligible. The exchanges that could be heard were full of contradictory information and purposeful misdirection.
1: Then, in June, Sheriff Anderson's entire scheme fell apart. Using a plastic spoon that he'd fashioned into a screwdriver, Utah opened the ventilator and found the microphone. He'd obviously assumed he and Terman were being recorded, but now he had definitive proof.
0: This gave the Wilson brothers the upper hand. Even though the surveillance was legal, it was decidedly unethical. When news of the hidden microphone reached the public, Sheriff Anderson's reputation went from bad to worse.
1: But that wasn't the end of it. A judge deemed the recordings inadmissible in court. Terman and Utah Wilson's trial was fast approaching, and the prosecution would have to make their case without a confession. They had one piece of physical evidence, the beer bottle, and a collection of circumstantial clues that pointed towards the brothers.
0: The trial began in early June. During their opening statement, the prosecution detailed what they knew about the night of Joanne Dewey's murder. They could only hope that the terrifying story would be enough to get a conviction.
1: Coming up, we go inside the last night of Joanne Dewey's life and discover her killer's fates.
0: Now back to the story. Ever since Terman Wilson got out of prison, he'd been itching to commit another crime. He didn't know why he felt such an urge to break the law. Maybe it was the adrenaline, the power, or the pleasure of getting away with it. Either way, he needed his fix, and he wanted his younger brother, Utah, to come along for the ride.
1: In Terman's eyes, Utah was soft. He'd only ever been to Juvie. He was a petty thief, not a real criminal. If he wanted to fit in with the rest of their troublemaking family, he needed to do something bigger.
4: Drink up. Olympia's the best beer around. Listen, Utah, I got an idea. What's that? You know what I got locked up for? Of course. I want to do it again. <laughs> but I'm gonna get away with it this time.
3: Kidnapping's no joke, Turman.
4: I want you to do it with me.
3: I'm not going to prison. A little bit of stealing here and there is enough for me.
0: Ah, Drink a little more and I bet you'll change your mind. Turman was right. Before long, Utah came around to the idea. They laid their plans together. They'd use their brother Grant's car to abduct and rape the first young woman who happened to cross their path.
1: On the weekend of March 12, 1950, Terman and Utah took Grant's black Buick to downtown Vancouver. They idled in a shadowy area on Broadway Street, popped open a pair of Olympia beers, and waited for the perfect victim to come their way.
0: Soon, a woman wearing a white coat walked by. Terman and Utah dropped their drinks and jumped out of the car. They grabbed the woman and tried to throw her into the back of the Buick, but she fought back harder than they'd expected. She slipped out of their grasp and ran away, forcing them to flee the scene in frustration.
1: That might have been enough for Utah, but Terman wasn't satisfied. The next weekend, they tried again. On Sunday, March 19th, they parked the Buick down the road from St. Joseph's Hospital on 12th Street, hoping to catch a nurse on her way to or from work.
0: Just like they had the previous weekend, they drank beer and waited.
4: Repeat after me. This time's gonna be different. Say it.
3: This time's gonna be different. Why? I'm not gonna let her slip away. Good, I'll prove it.
1: Around 11.30 p.m., 18-year-old Joanne Dewey passed their car.
0: Joanne had seen a movie in Portland, then taken a Greyhound across the river into Vancouver. She planned to catch another bus to her parents' house in Meadow Glade, Washington, but she arrived just a few minutes too late. At her mother's suggestion, she made her way to the hospital, where she could meet up with a neighbor who would drive her home.
1: But unbeknownst to her, Terman and Utah were waiting When she walked by, they jumped out and grabbed her.
0: Utah's empty bottle of Olympia beer fell out of the car and clattered to the ground.
1: But neither brother noticed the bottle. They were too focused on Joanne. They pulled on her coat, her hair, her arms, anything to stop her from running away. Joanne screamed like her life depended on it.
0: Some neighbors looked out their windows, but nobody came quick enough to help her. One of the Wilson brothers yelled out to onlookers that Joanne was his wife. She kicked and punched and yelled no. She didn't know these men at all, but it wasn't enough.
1: One of the Wilson brothers landed a punch in the center of her face. Her vision blurred and went black.
0: Joanne slumped over unconscious. Terman in Utah pushed her into the back seat of the Buick and sped away. By the time police arrived, all that remained were Utah's beer bottle and Joanne's hairpin, coat button, and purse strap.
1: While officers surveyed the scene, Terman and Utah drove across the Columbia River into Portland. They likely planned to stop somewhere remote and sexually assault Joanne. But when they opened the Buick's back door, they found that she was dead. The carbon monoxide leaking into the backseat of the car had poisoned her.
3: Jesus, Terman, did you kill her?
4: I I, I didn't mean to. Well, you must have. I can see that. What, What do we do? I don't know. Just shut up, okay? I'm trying to think. Oh, God. We've got to switch cars. If somebody called the cops, they'll be looking for the Buick. We switch cars, dump the body somewhere, and destroy
0: any evidence. Sound good? Okay. With Joanne's body still in the car, Terman and Utah drove to their brother Grant's house in Camas, Washington. It was past midnight, so Grant was already asleep. He didn't hear his brothers pull up outside.
1: Terman and Utah moved Joanne's body from the black Buick into the tan Pontiac coupe. They dropped the Buick off somewhere secluded, where it would later be picked up and impounded. Then they drove around in the Pontiac looking for a place to get rid of evidence.
0: It's unknown exactly when and where, but at some point, Terman and Utah pulled over and undressed Joanne's corpse. They buried her clothing, which has never been recovered.
1: After this, Terman and Utah returned to Grant's house and moved Joanne's body from the Pontiac into a Chevrolet coupe. It might have been at this time that one of the brothers... Possibly Terman sexually assaulted Joanne's corpse.
0: Finally, Terman and Utah drove the Chevrolet to the St. Martin Spring Resort in Carson, Washington. They took a little-known backroad to a stream, then threw Joanne's body into the water. It would remain there until a group of fishermen stumbled on it seven days later.
1: At that point, Terman and Utah believed they'd covered all but one of their bases, the last thing they needed to do was establish an alibi.
3: We could go to Mom's house. You kidding? No. We could sneak inside, spend the night, and act like we'd been there the whole time. Huh. All
0: right. The brothers drove the Chevrolet to their mother's house in Fern Prairie, Washington. According to them, when they pulled up, They saw two Pontiacs parked outside. Their stomachs dropped. It was too dark to know for sure, but the vehicles looked remarkably similar to police cruisers. Fearing that authorities were already on
1: their trail, Terman and Utah drove into the woods and spent the night in the Chevrolet.
0: There's no proof that investigators were at their mother's house But it's possible that Terman and Utah confused regular cars for police vehicles. Either way, the next morning, March 20th, they brought the Chevrolet back to Grant's house. Here's your keys.
4: You don't need them anymore? Listen, Grant, me and Utah are in a bad way. Okay. Last night, we stole somebody's power saw. You could have just borrowed mine. We were going to sell it for some cash, but the cops are already on to us. We're going to have to lay low for a while. Maybe even skip town. Go to California. Alright. It would be one thing if this was our first offense, but you know me and Utah have records. The cops are just looking for a reason to put us back in the slammer.
3: I get it. You can take the Pontiac if you want. I hardly drive it anyway.
1: Terman and Utah took Grant's tan Pontiac to Portland. They checked into a hotel using pseudonyms and spent a few days agonizing over what to do next. They then rented a Dodge, but later in the week, bought an Oldsmobile.
0: All the while, Terman and Utah kept up with newspapers in Portland and Vancouver. More and more articles were published about Joanne Dewey's disappearance. Finally, on Saturday, March 25th, The Wilson brothers decided the investigation was getting too intense and they needed to flee the area.
1: Terman and Utah drove the Oldsmobile for nine hours straight. They stopped in Sacramento, California to check into a motel. It was more difficult to keep up with the news from so far away, so they might have thought they were safe. They had no idea that Portland police had found the Pontiac they'd left behind and they never imagined that Grant was working with law enforcement.
0: This proved to be their downfall. When they called Grant and told him about their car and location, they led authorities right to their Sacramento motel. Once in custody, they tried to obfuscate the truth, but police and prosecutors wouldn't be deterred.
1: Prosecuting attorneys built a case against the brothers using the beer bottle as their only physical clue, Everything else was circumstantial, but it turned out to be enough. The jury ruled that Terman and Utah Wilson were guilty of Joanne Dewey's kidnapping and murder.
0: Moreover, the jury found the story infuriating. Joanne had been taken in plain sight, but few tried to help her. Perhaps in an attempt to right this terrible wrong, the jury sought not just punishment, but retribution they sentenced the two Wilson brothers to death.
1: Even as they sat on death row, Terman and Utah maintained their innocence. They argued that the evidence against them, which most people considered overwhelming, didn't prove their guilt beyond a reasonable
0: doubt. Over the next few years, the brothers repeatedly attempted to appeal their case Their executions were postponed while they petitioned for clemency. But ultimately, Washington Governor Arthur Langley refused to grant any further reprieves. On January 2nd, 1953, he said,
3: The Wilson brothers stand convicted of murder. They are no longer entitled to the presumption of innocence. They have, as the committee found, impeded the investigation by their persistent refusal to tell the truth. Terman and Utah Wilson are not entitled to clemency, and the judgment pursuant to the jury's verdict should now be permitted to take effect.
1: Washington authorities didn't hesitate to act on Governor Langley's orders. That very evening, Terman and Utah ate their last meal, a smorgasbord of fried meats, biscuits, gravy, desserts, and coffee. They ate like kings before heading to the gallows.
0: At 12.06 a.m. on January 3rd, 1953, almost three years after Joanne Dewey's murder, Terman Wilson was hanged. One minute later, Utah followed. The duo that terrorized Vancouver was finally gone for good.
1: But the damage they did lived on. Prior to Joanne Dewey's murder, people in Vancouver felt safe. They walked around the city at all hours, confident that they'd reached their destinations unscathed. Terman and Utah Wilson didn't just take Joanne's life. They took that feeling of security from everybody in the area.
0: Moreover, their crime forced locals to take a hard look at themselves and their community. The Wilson brothers kidnapped Joanne on a public street in front of scores of neighbors, and yet no one tried to save her. Everyone who heard her screams was haunted by their own inaction.
1: Years after Terman and Utah were executed, the truth still echoed through the streets of Vancouver. Somebody should have intervened. Joanne Dewey should have lived.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode.
1: For more information on Joanne Dewey, among the many sources we used, we found The Murder of Joanne Dewey in Vancouver, Washington, by Pat Gelada extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: If we live till next time.
1: Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, Fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Kai Jordan, Ellie Schiff, and Julian Smith. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new Parcast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.